Welcome to Hard Beautiful Journey. This is a podcast about addictions, mental health, and unresolved trauma. Do you want to feel less alone and more supported on the addiction journey you never thought you would be on? Do you find yourself asking questions such as, how can I help my loved one overcome their addiction? And am I doing enough? Do you wake up afraid that today will be the day your loved one overdoses and passes away? Hey, I'm Tiffany. I too felt helpless and wished that I could do more to help my brother who was struggling with addiction and mental health. I wanted him to find the help he needed and turn his life around, but I kept telling myself, it's too hard to beat this, there are not enough resources, and I'm not a professional, so what else can I do? I felt alone until I found hope through community, and I want to help you do the same. In this podcast, you will find community, hope, and resources to support your loved one through their addiction, and most importantly, support you. So grab a seat, get your earbuds in, and let's take this hard, beautiful journey together. Hey there, welcome to episode 68 of Hard Beautiful Journey. I'm so grateful that you are here for this one. But before I get to today's interview with Eric Kusin, I'd like to do a plug for the coaching that I've started doing and would love if you would share it with anyone you know that could benefit from this offer. Are you struggling to connect with your brother or sister who has an addiction? Do you feel guilt, shame, anger, or even resentment towards them? Are you struggling to live a normal life because your thoughts are consumed with worry about losing your sibling? I know what it feels like to walk the addiction journey. Growing up, my brother was my best buddy, my partner in crime, my secret keeper, my ally. Seemingly overnight, he had a new best friend, his addiction. After a three-decade battle, I lost my brother. It was one of the hardest things I have ever been through, and there are extreme highs and extreme lows. But I have peace knowing I reconnected with him before he passed. Imagine if you could release guilt, find forgiveness, and stop feeling helpless. Imagine you could understand your sibling again, all while protecting your heart and ultimately be able to love your brother or sister despite their addiction. Because truly, no one is too far gone to need love. That's why I created Reconnection Coaching, where I personally walk you through my three-step framework for rebuilding and maintaining a strong relationship with your sibling who is lost to addictions. You will be able to forgive yourself and your brother or sister for the stuff that led to your fractured relationship, the pain, mistrust, embarrassment, helplessness, and anger. You'll be able to move forward in love while protecting your peace. You will walk away with a reconnection plan where you can truly understand your sibling again and a newfound peace with your sibling's journey and a self-discovery toolkit to prioritize your life again, guilt-free. Knowing you're doing the best you can to love them with all that you are is all that they could ask for. So if you're ready to do the tough but necessary work to reconnect and rebuild your relationship with your sibling while also putting yourself first, I would love to help you. I am only taking five clients at a time and I have a few spots open. Go to hardbeautifuljourney.com. There is freedom from what you're feeling and hope in this journey. All right. So on to today's episode with my guest, Eric. 
Eric is the founder of the organization hashtag same here, the global mental health movement. Eric shares his personal story of fighting against a severe mental health crisis, how he was misdiagnosed for years, the missing part of the equation, and what led him to founding a global mental health movement. A big fan of marketing, psychology, and sport, Eric combined all three and began reaching out to his contacts to discuss how they could attack the mental health epidemic strategically and differently than had ever been done before. He had to bring purpose to his own experience and believed he must have gone through that horrific period for a reason. With suicides at a 30-year high and a drug opioid abuse out of control, he knows something major must change with the messaging if we're to reverse these negative trends. And I couldn't agree with him more. Here is my interview with Eric. Hey, Eric, how are you? Great. Thanks so much for having me. I am so excited that you are here today. I have been following you on Instagram for a couple years now, and I absolutely love your movement. It is the hashtag same here, um, global movement and everything that you are posting is, um, inspirational for one thing. Thank you. Um, your story and why you're, why you're doing what you're doing is inspirational. And I want everybody that here's my podcast to check you out because it's absolutely critical what you are covering in your social media and in, and in your company. So what I'd like to do with your interview today is start out with your story and because it is, it's critical what, uh, what your story led you to do. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly stop me along the way. You know, I, I tend to give a little too much detail sometimes. (laughs) No, I want to hear it. (laughs) Okay. Um, well, you know, it's interesting when we're talking about the topic of mental health because mental health wasn't on my radar screen whatsoever. Um, most of my life, you know, I was your typical jock growing up who happened to do decently enough in school that, you know, I end up going to Cornell University and I walk onto the basketball team there. And so I continue on with my athletic career. And, you know, I'm 6'4 and not 6'8 and athletic, not extremely athletic. So yeah. <laughs> I knew that if I was going to play, it would be overseas somewhere. And that probably wasn't the best possibility other than, you know, some of these opportunities that were arising here in the U.S. Um, where I applied to work in the business offices for a number of the sports leagues. And, you know, some of them got the quick rejection letters right away and other ones was able to continue on an interview with and ended up landing a position working at the NBA league office. Um, So I started there in 2001. It's amazing, you know, how time flies. And um, so it was the the gentleman I was working for at the time is a guy named Mark Tatum. Um, He's the deputy commissioner of the NBA right now. So it's just so fascinating to look back. The NBA league office is enormous, you know, thousands of people and to have had that experience to work for him was phenomenal and mm-hmm. started off, you know, with him led to an opportunity working in what's called team marketing and business operations, where I was running an organ uh, or a department that was called, uh, you know, the business of basketball, where we were presenting to the players on 
how the business side of the sport works instead of thinking of it like, you know, hey, these billionaire owners give me their millions. Where does the revenue actually come from and who is it important for them to interact with in order to build those revenue pools? So the season ticket holders and the corporate partners and all the stakeholders who are involved. And so, you know, I got a great education, you know, kind of in a hands-on way, uh, learning about the sports business in a, in a non-traditional way, because most sports businesses, you're doing the ticket sales and the sponsorship sales yourself. You're doing the marketing that's helping soften up the market for the ticket sales and the sponsorship sales. And so for me, it was dive right in and start to mm-hmm. talk with the players and teach them about, you know, how this industry runs and how we grow it. And, you know, looking back on it, they've done a pretty nice job given that the player salaries have gone from, think of the time when I was there as an average of four to $5 million a year to, you know, wow. some of these players are making, you know, 30, 40, 50 million a year, which is, which is unheard of, but they understood the the machine that that what was involved in, in growing these revenues, and so that led to opportunities then working for teams themselves. And so I helped start up a WNBA franchise, which was the first independently owned um, franchise outside of NBA ownership. Um, it was called the Chicago Sky out in Chicago, obviously. And so picked up my my life and moved out there background, which is interesting there is I had no formal sales experience, but here I am taking on a role as director of sales and service, right? So it, it came from, you know, rolling up my sleeves and living out there and, and and doing it with the staff first, having some success, building relationships, and then being given an opportunity to, to take on that responsibility in a more formal way. And then it led to all these different senior management positions with, you know, director of sales with the with the Phoenix Suns and the Phoenix Mercury out, out west and then back east coast to the New Jersey Devils to be their uh, vice president of sales and service. Great run with them for four years, made it to a Stanley Cup final, unfortunately lost in the final. But <laughs> um, then um, where, where the story starts to take a turn, where mental health starts to get introduced is... I took a role on the title of it was chief revenue officer with the Florida Panthers. And the way the hierarchy with teams works is, you know, my ultimate goal was to be a team president and to run the team business operations. And so this chief revenue officer role was a step away from that. You know, you're overseeing the various revenue buckets that all roll into a team from ticket sales to sponsorship sales to arena revenues to TV rights and, you know, was excited about that we had a new ownership group and, you know, they had just purchased the team and were excited about building a, a, a new fan base really from scratch because the existing fan base, while it was great, was was very much, you know, based on giving away comp tickets, just trying to fill the building. Mm-hmm. And this was, hey, we want to actually establish like a real support system here and we want to bring in the people with the right character and um, build the right culture. And so, Six months into my job there, I was loving it. I'm living in South Beach area, um, you know, single guy, you know, great new market, you know, meeting new friends. And then all of a sudden, you know, my brain and my body just hit a brick wall and it felt like it came out of nowhere. I just, ability to put sentences together became challenging. Look at people in the eyes and have a conversation. It felt almost like my kryptonite. Um, I would get in the office and look at the computer screen and the screen looked like light brights to me instead of looking like nice, clean, even email lines. And, you know, I didn't know from mental health, so I didn't know what was happening to me. 
Um, I just knew something was failing me and I, and I wasn't able to perform and had a great conversation with our team owner who, who I opened up to, you know, still the guy who's the owner there now has brought the team to much better success, which is nice to see that, that he kept on that path. But at the time, this was 2015 to give some historical perspective, there weren't a lot of folks talking about mental health, certainly not in an office setting. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even know if my issue was mental health. I said to him, I don't know if I have a brain tumor. I don't know if I had a traumatic brain injury. I don't know if I have this, you know, thing called mental health. I don't know if, you know, um, I had an aneurysm and, you know, as ridiculous. Let me interrupt you for a second, because I know exactly what you're talking about. I know exactly what you're talking about because I had the same thing happen to me and I described it as a feeling of Tourette's coming on where it was like, my brain was misfiring and it was like, I can't like actually put words together right now. Yeah. Yeah. And is that how you felt too? No, it, 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 you're describing it well. I mean, you know, for the, it's interesting at this, I'm, I'm jumping back and forth in timelines, but kind of after I started healing, there was this group that I found that reached out to me on Facebook. It's called loss, loss of thought process. Could you imagine how miserable a group of people have to be to join? And they have thousands of members, a group that's called loss of thought process. Right. Yeah. So, and we'll get into the science of it. The fact that the brain can misfire in that way to the point where things that we take for granted, like waking up in the morning and your mind going, I need to take a shower. Mm-hmm. I need to grab my towel. I need to go brush my teeth. And those things aren't naturally coming to your mind. And then to your point about not being able to form sentences, you know, my parents came down at a certain point. They flipped when when this started happening during the two weeks that the bottom fell out of me. And I remember them saying, oh, we'll just, you know, order food. We'll, 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 we'll have a nice meal. We'll relax. And I, I couldn't even pick up the phone and have a conversation with the person remembering what I wanted to order on the menu or communicating what I want to order. That's how the brain, the misfiring can happen. And so, you know, I went back to New York um, with the support of that owner that I was describing, military background, West Point grad. So, you know, certainly he'd seen mental health before and was extremely supportive and said, take as much time as you need, one month, two months, three months, you'll come back, you'll hit the ground running. And so, okay, now I'm like, all right, I've got some time on my hands. I can leave my stuff down in Florida, go back to New York where... I'm using air quotes, the top doctors are at, um, and I can, I can find some kind of path towards healing, which when you grow up and you're sick and you have strep throat bronchitis or pneumonia and your parents take you to the general practitioner or the pediatrician, depending on what they call it, or the family doctor, you take a pill and you get better. You take amoxicillin or penicillin or Leviquin or whatever it is, and it kicks in two or three days in and you feel better. When your brain's not feeling right, And when what's pushed to you through media, and I'll even, without mentioning the names of the organizations, through some of the largest organizations in the mental health space, that the gold standard for mental health treatment is medication management and talk therapy, medication management and talk therapy, well, your mind immediately goes to, okay, my brain's not working. I'm going to go back to New York to these top doctors. Let me find the doctor who's going to find the right pill combinations for me, combined with talk therapy, that's going to pop me out of this. And as someone who's a stubborn SOB who wants to work hard and get back to working again and get back to my life again, okay, give me whatever pill I need to take, no matter how 
you know, hard the transition period is and, and I'll, I'll get through it and then I'll get back to living my life. And that's what I thought would happen. Unfortunately, I ended up spending two and a half years just laying in the bed, staring at the ceiling, not watching TV, not listening to podcasts, barely answering my friend's text messages. I mean, to this day, it's it's not a joke because obviously it's not something funny, but you know, you, you kid a little bit that all I was saying is still alive or like still here, right? Mm-hmm. Because in that time period, I was tried on over 50. So it's actually 52, looking back on the different machinations of it, 52 different psychotropic drug combinations. And 52. 52, yeah, in two and a half years. And these, I've seen four different specialists, you know, a psychopharmacologist who then, well, you need a specialist in this related to psychopharmacology because we think that this is what's misfiring and this is the, the, the neurochemical that you need more of. And it got to the point where you believe this as it's happening because you're looking at these whiteboards that they have and they're writing, you know, across the rows, they're writing SSRI, SNRI, MAOI, tricyclic, and then the columns, right? They're putting a check mark next to each one that you've tried within those columns, right? Oh, mm-hmm. you've tried Prozac, you've tried Zoloft. Okay, let's go to Parnate with the MAOI, right? And obviously, I could be here forever talking about the symptoms, but I was literally just a guinea pig being tried and all these different, here's a dartboard and let's throw one at, at you. You know, the, the, I think back to it as like, there were times when I was explaining of cognitive, you know, fog and malaise and, and, and lack of clarity of thoughts. And so, okay, well, one of the doctors thought that involved ADD and ADHD. So what are they going to do? They're going to give me an upper, like a Nuvigil or a Provigil or a Ritalin or an Adderall. Well, all that did was skyrocket my anxiety levels higher which then made my thoughts more awful, which made me not be able to concentrate and focus. And then I'd tell the doctor that and they'd go, well, just take more of the Xanax then. It'll calm it down. So yeah. you're like this meter that they're just like, you know. And each so, of those takes, you know, four weeks to see yes. if, if it's actually working or not. So, no, and, and you're buying into the four week thing, not saying that it, for the people that medications work, we'll get into, you know, that find some kind of symptom relief. That's how I think the medications work. Not a cure, but symptom relief. Yes, that four-week period is a good period to wait to judge. For me, it was like, you know, okay, I'm starting to feel weird symptoms almost immediately. I have a really sensitive central nervous system. And so I'm holding on for dear life as the, the most awkward, random, crazy thoughts. And I'm sorry to use that term, but that's what they were, were running through my mind. But, oh, I've got the four-week thing on the back of my head. So it's like, hey, hold on as long as you can. So for people who are like, well, you were laying in bed for two and a half years, that, that doesn't sound like hard work. In your own head, you're running a marathon and you are... Mm-hmm doing everything you can and you think extra sleep is going to make you feel better. And that if you sleep 16 hours or 18 hours a day, your body needs that rest. Pausing the story right there. It, it, if you lost sleep for a couple of nights, yes, catching up on sleep is great. If you're noticing in the world of mental health that you're sleeping 15, 16 hours a day, and you're continuing to do that, you're a self-fulfilling prophecy, unfortunately, where you're digging yourself a deeper and deeper hole. That's a sign that something is not right, that oversleep. And it's not resting your body. It's throwing your body more and more into stagnation, which then breeds more and more stagnation. Side note, but we'll, mm-hmm. something we get back to. So, um, you know, I, I was recommended to do what's called TMS therapy, where they put a, 
helmet on your head and shoot electromagnetic waves into your brain to your point about um, the neurons firing that that's essentially what they tell you. So for people who've never had it before, they try to hit this area in the brain called the motor threshold. And the way they know that they've hit it is that your thumb starts jumping, right? Mm -hmm. So you get fitted for it and you, you wear this hat that they have the, the marker on and they make sure they're hitting the area and mm -hmm. you know, okay, it's something different. So I'm excited to do it now. And, and they tell me I should do it every single day. It's not covered by insurance. It's $350 a session. These, every day you had to do it? Every single day. They were open on Saturdays and Sundays. It was recommended that you do it. And these, the look, I can knock anything, right? Because, because different things are going to work for different people. I'm not trying to knock TMS as it doesn't work for some. Just in my case, it wasn't working. And, mm -hmm. and, and there's people who pray. I want to make sure people do their homework on people who are desperate and it's like TMS is the answer. It's a possible answer, you know, but in my case, unfortunately, the opposite is I was 23 sessions in 23 days in a row. And the morning going in on the morning of the 24th, like three in the morning, I was sitting on the edge of my bed. I just have it ingrained in my mind like it was yesterday. You know, my hands are underneath my butt like this because there's a bottle of pills on my counter. And all of a sudden, this thought runs through my mind, swallow that bottle, swallow that bottle, swallow that bottle. And I never had a thought like that before in my life. You know, you talk about what well, we're wanting to dive into the college athlete thing later. You know, why are we losing so many people to suicide? For people who are hearing me say that thought was playing over and over again in my mind, I want you to consider that nothing bad situationally had happened in the two and a half years I was laying in bed like that. No one in my family had passed. My pets were all healthy. No bad breakups, Right. So where does that thought come from? Another question is, why do I normally look at a bottle of pills and say, oh, I take those once a day and then put them away in the cupboard and not think twice about it? Those things help me when I take them once a day to now all of a sudden my mind flips on that and goes, no, you need to swallow all of them right at this moment, right? How does that happen in the brain? We'll get back to that. So, you know, having that thought, scared the crap out of me and it's not something I wanted to stay in there. And I guess I was lucky that I was around family at the time and was able to ask for help. And so I went inpatient and you know, don't usually say the name of the hospital because it's not the most complimentary experience with that hospital, but let's just say it was one of the top treatment facility centers in New York. And, you know, I'm, I'm transferred from their ER and they're main to a, a, an off-campus facility, which is supposed to be their top treatment facility center of the group that they have. And I'm on a psych ward floor where it is septic and cold, and it feels like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And I, it, it pains me when people go to the hospital nowadays because uh, there are some getting better at it. Don't get me wrong. And it's stuff that we're working on with hospitals. And when we talk about seeing here what we're doing, but it's still the mental hospital and the psych ward and the, the, these, these septic hospital halls, it's not a very welcoming place when you're not in your best mindset. Yeah. And so you go in and I, and I meet with the attending psychiatrist there and she reads my chart and she's looking at all the stuff on the chart. She's like, you know, Eric, you've tried everything there is. Your last resort is to do shock therapy, which she called in fairness. She didn't call it shock therapy. She called it, ECT, electroconvulsive therapy. And it was something looking at that at a distance when I was sick earlier, I never thought I would do it. But when you're 
in the office of someone who's telling you last resort and you're seeing her top doctor plaques on the wall, what else do you do? Like you don't have friends to call up and say, when you were offered shock therapy, did you do it? You know, it's so (laughs) you listen to what the expert tells you. And so I did 12 sessions over five weeks. They, they bring you in a room in a wheelchair. They put you on what's kind of like a dentist's chair in a way, in in an office about the size of a dentist's office. And they put a blood cu- uh, pressure uh, cuff around your ankle. Um, they put an oxygen mask on your face. They put, um, you know, they get your arm ready for the needle for general anesthesia. Um, and they give you what, for my case, was propofol, the, the general anesthesia that uh, Michael Jackson, unfortunately, overdosed on. Um, and they put you into, into sleep, right, in the general anesthesia where they use electrodes on your brain and they shock your brain into seizure, hoping almost like a hard restart on a computer that the you know jolt is going to restart your brain to start functioning again. Whereas the synapses, you know, the, the the neurons between the synapses haven't been firing. That by shocking it in this way, it's going to restart it, and that's why they call it a last resort treatment. And you know, skipping past the misery of those sessions because I would wake up for an hour and not know where I was or who what my name is or what state I'm in or anything like that. You come to about an hour later and I left the hospital after the five weeks and 12 sessions feeling no better than I had the two and a half years prior, essentially thinking my life is over because this woman told me that was my last resort. And so where the story turns to the better is um, my parents are both former educators. So my father was a principal, mother was a language teacher, and they would go to these continuing education courses all the time. And so they went to this one course called integrative breathing practices. And I didn't know what the term integrative meant, and I'd never done a breathing practice before. So (laughs) it didn't really register on my radar screen that what they were going to. And my mom ran back from the class tonight. She's like, we met this doctor. Her name is Donna. She's a psychologist. She treats differently than all these other doctors you've been to. Can't explain it, but it's, you have to try it. Please go, you know, like she'll explain it better. So three days later, I find myself on her couch. And I think what most people will relate to is what I was expecting was what I got at every other doctor's appointment I'd been to, which is there's three main phases of most appointments. Phase one is it's very nice to meet you, Tiffany. What are your symptoms? And then you start listing out your symptoms. Okay, Tiffany, based on your symptoms, here's your diagnosis. And then you're given, and I was diagnosed with everything from melancholic depression to anhedonic depression to PTSD, OCD, ADD, ADHD. I mean, every alphabet soup of of diagnoses I was given. And then based on your diagnosis, here's how we're going to treat you which is where the medications came from. You know, their belief was these medications target these deficiencies that are related to these disorders. So this is what you need. And she treated the the session very differently. She's like, Eric, couch is yours for the next hour. I'm not going to ask a question if I don't need to. The only question I'm going to ask you is, can you tell me about who Eric is? I want to get to know you, the person. And keep talking until you stop talking and what keeps coming to mind. Let's hear the story of your life, how you tell it. And that's obviously a psychoanalytical tool in and of itself that I didn't realize at the time. I thought she was just disarming me and wanted to get to know me as a person. And so the story there is I, I just started going to my earliest memories and one after the other, it was like, Oh, well, I was eight years old and my older brother broke his femur bone, which is the largest bone in our body was put in tracks and in a, in a body cast for a year at homeschooled mm-hmm. healed from that. And then a month later got diagnosed with ALL, which is a children's form of leukemia. So 
five years of chemo and radiation. Um, but you know, late eighties, early nineties, not the best prognosis for ch childhood leukemia goes into remission. Everyone's celebrating. We're in a good place as if there's a cadence to it. A month later, he's in a Jeep Wrangler with his friends, open top, open back, no seatbelt in the back. He's in the back seat. Car loses control, flies out of the back, lands on his head, cracks his head open, loses partial vision in his eyes, in ICU for a month. Heals from that, goes to college, is feeling a pain in his knee. They give him all these tests. They find out, unfortunately, the cancer from childhood's returned. So now they have to give him a stronger chemo regimen to really knock it out of the system, which for the first year does a phenomenal job at lowering the cancer cells. But unfortunately, what we know about chemo is it also does a number on the healthy cells. And so you're seeing his body breaking down, his joints are getting weaker. Well, I'm up at college at this point. I get a call from my father to come down and meet them. And my brother's got 105 fever. Um, and the neurologist meets with us and tells us his body's gone into what's called septic shock, mm -hmm. where the organs start attacking themselves. And from an acidic standpoint, it was from the buildup of the chemo, what we believe. And then septic shock, he falls into a coma. And the scary thing about the coma is the doctors tell us the tube is breathing for him to keep him alive. We don't know if he's going to wake or if he does wake, if he's going to have any brain activity. So, you know, that goes on for three months. You know, everyone's holding on for dear life. We don't know what's going to come of this, but miraculously he wakes full cognitive faculties about him. Everyone's celebrating, but his kidneys fail oh from being goodness. in the septic shock. Mm -hmm. So has to go on dialysis. We all get tested to see who's the closest mass. My father is donates a kidney to him. That all ends. I get that job at the league office that I told you about blank slate, real world, get to start over from scratch. And unfortunately, three of my close friends pass away in that year, back to back to back, either misdiagnosed or undiagnosed heart conditions. And so when I share the detail of that story, the reason why the detail of that story is important is because it shaped this organization I, I decided to form because in sharing that level of detail with this woman, her reaction back to me was, Eric, what else happened to you as a child that impacted your mental health? And I said, what are you talking about? You asked me to tell you about my life. I've been laying in a bed for two and a half years at 35 years old, being told I have a chemical imbalance that's got these labels and these letters related to it that I just need the right medication to balance out my genetic imbalance that I have. What does that have to do with what I went through as a child? Well, now all of a sudden she starts explaining to me how stress and trauma over periods of our lifetime, and it doesn't have to be as intense as what I described. You could be walking down the street and the car can lose control and get into an accident and no one gets hurt, but now you're afraid to walk on sidewalks because you're afraid cars can lose control all the time. And you think about that every time you're walking on a sidewalk, that our nervous system starts to take a beating. And it, you know, the analogy for me was if plaque can build in our arteries and we can teach kids at a young age to do jump rope for heart or hoops for heart to work on that plaque that builds up right? To, to start getting our heart rate going, to eat green leafy vegetables. Well, why can't we talk about how stress and trauma start to build and impact our nervous system over time? That and that's is really a great analogy. Thank you. Like, honestly, that is, that is such a good way of putting it because like you, like you said, that is a big focus in schools is talking about your heart and keeping it healthy and there is so many moments in your childhood that can absolutely build up in your nervous system and you keep it in there locked in tight. 
we're not told to do it. Like in fairness to everyone in society who doesn't work on it, I'm not even talking about the people who are anti the concept of mental health. I'm just talking about people who are neutral and they don't know any better. Yeah. No one tells us these things, right? So we're we're fed these isms when we're when we're kids, like time heals all wounds. Forget the last play and move on to the next one. So what we do when we feel things and experience things that we don't like, we're like, forget about it, forget about it. Just think of something else. Distract yourself with YouTube, right? That's what kids do now. We had playing out in the streets when we were younger, but <laughs> yeah. whatever the distraction is, don't deal with it, don't deal with it, don't deal with it. Eventually, like that plaque in the arteries, that stress and trauma builds enough, your body is holding on to it and it's going to do something with it. And you know what I realized it, because I started healing by this doctor telling me to go to breathing practices. And I, I, you know, I show up, I'm the only man, only one under 40 and only one born in this country in this class. So it's me and eight Indian women and nine yoga mats, yep. right? I'm a complete fish out of water. But I ended up asking question after question after question, peppering this guy, peppering the people who are in the course, people who grew up in India, this is natural for them. This is something that they grew up with. And so I wanted to know why does this work? How does it work? And started learning about the vagus nerve and the vagus nerve connecting the brain and the body and how we experience things. We see them through our eyes, our brain processes them, and then we change the way that we breathe, right? So simple example for anyone listening is you watch a car accident happen and you go, well, that breath and how that breath is going across that vagus nerve in your neck from your brain down to the rest of your body is telling your body, this is a different situation than the situations you're most normally in where you're just breathing naturally, quote unquote, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Well, the car does, accident doesn't happen every day in our lives, but the equivalent of car accidents happen pretty frequently. My friend is getting bullied. My parents are sick. My you know, job is, is, is on the line with this presentation I have to give, right? There's constant oh shit moments where that's happening and we're changing the way we're breathing. So I now was able to buy into this concept of, okay, doing rhythmic breathing patterns is going to start to renormalize that consistency of that vagus nerve oversimplification that I'm making right now, right? But at least that's one practice that now okay, I can stick with this idea of breathing and doing it at home and, and, and allowing it to actually make physical changes to my body that start improving this brain-body connection of mine. And, you know, not surprisingly looking back on it, but, but back then it was a surprise. 30 days into doing that, I wake up one morning and I'm like, holy shit, I want to turn the TV on. This is amazing. And I yeah. want to have scrambled eggs for breakfast, right? Yeah. And, and you know, that realization that we can heal and that I, I started to feel better and that these medications and this talk therapy alone and the sci-fi treatments didn't work for me, but something as simple as learning to naturally start to heal my central nervous system and my overall brain body connection was what got me to a better place. I just became fascinated with a number of different things. One, I wanted to share my story. So I, what I just shared with you, I put out on LinkedIn of all places because I didn't, I know we met on uh, Instagram. I didn't have Instagram. I didn't have Twitter. I wasn't a social media person. So I just wrote that whole thing on LinkedIn. I was like, throw caution to the wind. 
I'd, I'd missed two and a half years of how technology had improved. So my friends were like, people do video now. They don't just write things. <laughs> but I took a chance and I wrote it. And there was no yeah. character limits at the time. This is 2017. Mm-hmm. And it gets read over 150,000 times in three days. Wow. And I get over 400 calls from as far as China, right? And yeah. here's the big impetus for me forming an organization is no one who called me, sounds like hyperbole, but it's not. I'd say if looking back at that spreadsheet that I still kept, I took notes, about 315-ish of the 400 people I got in touch with, okay, over the course of many weeks, no one was sharing a disorder label with me. No one was saying, Eric, I have bipolar, I have, I, I have um, you know, uh, borderline, it's different than your PTSD that you had. Instead, everyone was sharing a lived experience story with me because what they related to was what I described I'd been through with my brother. Mm-hmm. And it didn't have to be exactly what I'd been through with my brother. I lost a child to SID, sudden infant death syndrome, and I've never been the same. I'm a married mother, two beautiful kids, but I broke up my college boyfriend and there was a knot in my stomach the morning I made that decision. That knot has never gone away. Every, Even though I'm with my, my, my soulmate now, for some reason, I can't get that knot out of my stomach. And what that helped me realize was the thread that ties the human condition together is not disorders. And it's not labels and it's not this thing called mental illness, which a lot of people equate with mental health. It's challenging life events that we all experience at different levels and hold on to in different ways, but that impact all of us. We all have nervous systems. We all go through challenging events. That's what life is. And so therefore we're all impacted. That's the common thread. And so having the sports background, I was like, okay, I've got relationships with athletes and people with platforms. Let me go to the, these large nonprofit websites. And if someone's talking about mental health in this way, I'll give them my context. I'll bow out and I'll go back into sports and happy to kind of, you know, go, you know, have done my death to society by being Western medicine's guinea pig and I'll go back. Mm-hmm. And what I noticed on all these websites is they're consistent. But are they consistent for a reason? I'll let anyone else listening judge that. Is there's three things that are the main communication points on all of them. I'm talking about the largest in our country, even our world for that matter. But specifically in the US, the three messages that they all continue to perpetuate, this was in 2017, I noticed it. We just had May's Mental Health Awareness Month, it's still in 2022, is Mm -hmm. first, they all start with the statistic, one in five people are mentally ill. Mm -hmm. So if you start with that statistic, immediately you're making the topic of mental health binary. There's one in five mentally ill people. There's four in five people who are what? And when I ask a room of people what category they fall in, if they're not in the mentally ill category, the hands go up and it's healthy, fine, normal, okay. Healthy, fine, normal, okay. Every place, doesn't matter what the demographic of the group is, that's what their answer is. So think about that compared to heart health, what we were talking about before. If everyone's healthy, fine, normal, and okay, no one's going to be jump roping. No one's going to be running on the treadmill. No one's going to be doing anything in advance. We're going to wait for this thing called the heart attack to develop, and then it's too late, right? So, so mm-hmm. immediately binary, and, and we're waiting for things. Second thing is all the campaigns for normalization, they drive me insane You know, uh, when I see them. They're all an action word followed by stigma. Mm-hmm. So stop the stigma, stop the stigma, break the stigma, race the stigma. Now you go into all these sports. Baseball has strike out the stigma. Football has kicked the stigma. And I get that there's a fun play on the word stigma. It's a great message if it's you and I forming a mental health charity for the two of us, the Tiffany and Eric mental health charity. Like, 
Yeah, let's tell people to stop the stigma. Let's rally people that way. It literally is, and I, I mean this in, 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 in as loving a way to the people who use those messages as possible. It is the worst campaign you can have to try to convince and change people what they're doing by doing the stigma. Mm-hmm. Because when you tell people stop, stop, rape, race, that's finger pointing and making a command at that group of people. Stigma doesn't get formed by this bottle of water I'm holding. Mm-hmm. It gets formed by human beings. Mm-hmm. So when you're putting an action word in front of stigma, that's a command. Look at what's happening with gun control versus mental health as an argument. You're wrong. No, you're wrong. You need to stop doing. No, you need to stop. That doesn't bring sides closer together. That moves them further apart. So now we've got the one in five group and the folks who protect that one in five group. And then you've got the four and five and the one in five are telling the four and five, you need to stop the stigma. That's making this happen. Yep. So now that's pointing us in, 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 in more separate directions. Final piece, which I think actually makes those two things even worse is the way that celebrity stories are shared, right? So it started with Britney Spears and Lindsay Lohan and these, these nonprofit websites were like, you're not alone. Britney Spears is part of the one in five group. She's got depression. Lindsay Lohan is part of the one in five. She's got anxiety. And then you link to their stories off the website to Us Weekly or People Magazine. And it's like, Britney Spears has depression, shaves her head. Lindsay Lohan has anxiety, dresses like a hot mess. Kevin Love has anxiety, runs off the basketball court. Even to the point now where even with celebrities having social media being in control of their message, the path towards monetization, which is sadly what a lot of these celebrities are after when they talk about mental health, is say your name, say the label, and say what's helped you. So I'm Kevin, or so I'll use Michael Phelps. I'm Michael Phelps. I had depression during the Olympics and suicidal thoughts. Use Talkspace. All that does is say Michael Phelps fit in that one in five category. Mm-hmm. It doesn't normalize this conversation. What normalizes this conversation, this is the concept of same here, is my parents went through a difficult divorce when I was growing up. I was abused as a child. I lost an uncle at a really early age and he was like my father figure and that crushed me. I grew up in a difficult neighborhood. The normalization of the what we went through that puts us on this continuum that we're all on, that makes the topic five and five, not one and five and gets everyone involved. (laughs) Seriously, that is the perfect way of describing that. And, and I love that you are giving a concrete example of how to frame it, right? Not just saying, don't say that anymore, but actually put yourself and what did you go through to normalize it? Right. We have, we have mirror neurons in our brains. You know, I wrote a post the other day, you might've seen it and, and Instagram, like they do suppress the hell out of it because they hate it is, uh, you know, it was a post about how we had just had, we're in the middle of pride. We just had Memorial Day. We just had May's Mental Health Awareness Month. And we're losing more and more of these, you know, college athletes that we spoke about. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, I got this note from this mom who had lost her child to suicide, who said how comforted she felt seeing the parents of all those children who were lost to suicide on the Today Show. And the point that I tried to make in the post was that's a one-to-one relationship, parent losing child to suicide. And that's amazing that that comfort was there. Not amazing that it happened, obviously, but amazing that the comfort is there for them. But if we take a step back, the war that the veteran fought in, that was a war they were fighting in their mind. 
the war that the parent who's dealing with the loss of a child is a war in and of itself. The war that the child who grew up and is gay was afraid to tell their family about it and now is afraid to come out of the closet, afraid of rejection, afraid of how others are going to take that, that's a war that child's been facing. If we actually take a step back and talk about our experiences and the difficulties and how they impact us and how they made us feel, there's more of a connection. And why is that important? Because let's say I'm gay. Well, maybe there's not someone else in my family who's gay. So I don't have that one-to-one to be able to connect with them on. Right. Let's say I fought more and I'm the only one in my family who did. Well, there's no one else in my family to be able to open up about that. When we talk about the impacts of the stressors and the difficult events that we've been through, now that what that mom shared with me, which was so beautiful about how she felt comforted, we could feel comforted in each other. We're just so bound by the confines of this is the bucket that I'm in. These are the only people that I can relate to. And then social media and traditional media, just they pepper that over and over. You can only relate to these people because these people have been through what you've been through. And these are the same labels and they have the same beliefs as you because you see them posting about it on social media. Mm-hmm. Um, so drives so me it's- crazy too. And like, <sighs> so that is why I know that by talking about what you've been through, can make a difference and can connect you to people is my own story through infertility, through um, a mental health breakdown that I had um, through parenting kids with ADHD and that those struggles, right? It's actually normalizing the day-to-day struggles that you're having that connect you to people that say, yeah, I same here, same here. I feel that way too. And thank you for saying it so that I can also say it. And and then you who said it, now all of a sudden, instead of this heavy thing that you've been holding on to, it's actually relief. It's so gone. It's, only, it's gone. <laughs> and, and it's no longer like, what are people going to think if I opened up? You've already opened up. You've put it out there. You've taken that chance. And I, you know, I mean this the loving way to screw everyone who doesn't want it interact with me. I remember my mom saying, you know, if you tell this story, you know, this might hurt your chances of getting back in the sports industry if you ever want to go in it. And I said, okay, if 99% of the people shun me, I'll work for the 1% of the people who don't. Like I'm at this point after what I've been through that I don't want to work with the other 99% of that. What's the option? What's the option? Laying in your bed for another (laughs) 20 years or working for the 1%? Right. And I mean, her thought process was, you've healed on your own. You found the healing, mm-hmm. hide it now because you got through it and tell people you were through an ailment, but you know, mm-hmm. so it wouldn't necessarily have been, but, but to your point in, in thinking of the X and O's of it, had I not been so open about, it, I think one of the things that's keeping me healthy and, and energetic and able to do my work is that I'm open about it. Is that coming on a podcast like this, I have zero shame in talking about it. The suicidal thoughts, which we can dive into, zero shame in that because what suicide is, is it's the end of the spectrum of all that stuff building up over time, not knowing what to do about it, and then it creating these error messages in our brain, right? And people might say, I'm out of my mind for saying that because it's happened with eight and nine-year-olds. We all have a different capacity for how that spectrum of what it's able to take on at certain ages that's why it happens at, at, at different ages is because the bandwidth, just like a computer, 
Why do some computers able to take on a lot of memory and a lot of RAM? And I'm, I'm messing up all the terms, right? Because I'm not a tech guy, but why can they take on more without blue screening? And But then others can't, right? And it's because our capacity at certain ages, right? So we reach the end of that capacity. Then we start to get these error messages, which are self-harm and harm to others. Why should we have shame in that? <laughs> if anything, the people who are struggling the most are the people who try to do the most because they were like, how do I busy myself with things where I can really be productive and do things that I really love so that I could do the only thing that I've been taught that makes these feelings go away, which is to not think about them and to do something else and busy myself in something else. Mm-hmm. That doesn't sound like a weak person to me. No. <laughs> that sounds like a person who's working their butt off, just didn't know the right way to find the balance. So guess what? There is still a lot more to this interview with Eric, and you do not want to miss what he has to share in the conclusion of this interview. It will air this Thursday, June 16th as a bonus episode. There is something Eric talks about that had my mind blown, and I can't wait for you all to hear about it. Today, I am truly grateful for this podcast. I know it's my podcast, So what I mean is I am just so happy that I decided to do it in the first place and that I get to have these fantastic conversations with people on topics that I know are helping someone out there. And maybe it's you. If any of the content that I have shared over the past 68 episodes has impacted you in any way, I would love to hear about it. Hearing these stories is what keeps me going. I have even made a page on my website completely dedicated to leaving feedback for the podcast and how to leave a review. I honestly would be so honored if you would take time to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. When you do, it helps my show be put in front of bigger audiences and can help more people. Head to hardbeautifuljourney.com slash leave a review for more information. Please come back this Thursday for the conclusion of this episode with Eric. And until next time, be kind and stay well. Bye-bye.